Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, committed to researching innovative treatments to address unmet needs in head and neck cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about surgical advances in the treatment of lung cancer with Dr. Daniel Baffa. Dr. Baffa is a professor of thoracic surgery at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery at Yale and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. So Dan, let's talk about lung cancer. I mean, most of us know that it's an incredibly common disease, right? It's the second most common malignancy in both men and women. Um, So how often is surgery really a part of the care of these patients with lung cancer? So uh, lung cancer, there's about 200,000 newly diagnosed uh, lung cancer patients in the United States each year. And about a quarter of them uh, have earlier stage uh, cancer where surgery is the only treatment they will receive. Uh, Another 10 to 20% of them have intermediate stage cancer where they will receive surgery and some other uh, form of treatment, uh, be it uh, chemotherapy uh, or radiation. So around half of the uh, lung cancer patients will be eligible for for, uh, surgery uh, at some point uh, during their course. And so tell us more about surgical advances. I mean, when we think about lung cancer surgery, you know, that always sounds like a big operation, like somebody's cutting out part of your lung and you need your lungs to breathe. That, That might be a little bit difficult. Well, I would say the exciting changes in lung cancer surgery affect both what we have to offer and who we have to offer it to. I think that uh, what we have to offer uh, is been uh, tremendously improved by our uh, advances in minimally invasive surgery. Uh, You're absolutely correct that uh, the traditional approach to lung cancer used to involve a a very large incision uh, that uh, required a fair bit of recovery um, and uh, involved uh, losing a fair bit of, uh, of working lung tissue that could permanently alter a patient's quality of life. We now have uh, embraced uh, minimally invasive uh, techniques, and uh, uh, these appear to reduce the uh, frequency of complications and um, allow patients to return to their normal uh, status much more quickly. Um, we have uh, the concern with minimally invasive uh, surgery is always, is it as effective at curing cancer as the tried and true approaches? Um, we've looked at this uh, both uh, nationally and we've looked at this, uh, the research teams at Yale have looked at this, and there's pretty strong evidence that the minimally invasive, the minimally invasive approaches are just as effective as the classic um, uh, approaches through larger incisions. So I think that most patients have an option uh, that uh, involves much smaller incisions and a, and a faster recovery. That being said, 
you want to have the goal of cancer surgery is to have the cancer removed safely and completely. And I think it's important uh, to have your cancer addressed by a surgeon who is comfortable doing a minimally invasive approach if that's appropriate, but also who's comfortable doing uh, more complex procedures, um, which may require having the lung uh, cut apart and sewn back together kind of like a lung transplant, um, and as that uh, often allows us to save lung tissue. Um, the other area which I think lung cancer surgery has uh, made great strides is in who we are offering lung cancer surgery to. Um, uh, most patients with lung cancer, but not all, have a history of smoking, and therefore their lung function is not normal. Um, and we have, uh, I think, minimally invasive uh, techniques have allowed us uh, to uh, perform surgery on patients who previously were uh, borderline with respect to how uh, much healthy lung tissue they had and their ability to recover uh, from surgery. So I think we, we have been in expanding the, the pool of patients that we believe are eligible for surgery, uh, in part because of uh, our use of minimally invasive surgery, but also I, uh, our medical, uh, our pulmonary uh, colleagues have uh, become um, uh, better at supporting patients uh, through surgery with uh, various uh, breathing treatments and inhalers and physical therapy and respiratory therapy and other uh, uh, steps to enhance recovery. So let's talk a little bit about that and break down some of the things that you said. You know, one of the things that I was wondering about was this whole impact of smoking on lung function and how much lung you can remove. So the first question is, when you have a patient with lung cancer who's about to undergo an operation, whether it's a big operation or a minimally invasive one, are they supposed to quit smoking before they have that surgery? Yes, we we prefer that all patients uh, quit smoking uh, before surgery. We um, uh, uh, we have uh, invested a, a fair bit of uh, our resources in um, uh, developing uh, techniques to help people quit. Quitting smoking is one of the hardest things uh, a person can do, and. Um, we recognize that, but we also recognize the importance uh, and um, the uh, the advantage that non-smokers have uh, in recovery and also uh, with respect to cancer coming back. So um, we and, and other uh, hospitals uh, have uh, developed uh, programs to help patients uh, quit smoking, and uh, we encourage all of our patients uh, to stop smoking. That being said, one out of seven uh, patients who develop lung cancer has uh, never smoked. So it does, it does affect both smokers and non-smokers. But as you said, you know, quitting smoking is one of the hardest things to do. And even if you have these programs to help people quit, it may take a long time for them to quit smoking. So does that delay their lung cancer surgery? We generally do not delay lung cancer surgery for the sole purpose of having uh, a patient uh, quit smoking. Um, the, um, we offer uh, counseling and medication uh, between uh, the time that they're evaluated in our clinic and the time they uh, go to the operating room, and we support them after surgery with patches um, to uh, ease the cravings uh, um, uh, as they recover from surgery. 
Um, I do think that uh, the majority of our patients end up quitting um, around the time of surgery or after surgery um, because it's, it's, it certainly is an eye-opener. When, when somebody's been diagnosed with cancer, it really uh, drives home uh, the negative impacts that smoking can have uh, in terms of how long and, and how well we live. And the other question I had, when you were talking about minimally invasive versus open surgery with a big incision, one of the things you said was that you um, can take less normal, healthy lung tissue. Is that right? Or is it that the technique, uh, you know, when we think about gallbladder surgery, for example, whether you have a big cut or uh, a laparoscopic uh, gallbladder removal with the little tiny incisions, you're still taking out the same gallbladder. But is it the case that in lung cancer surgery, you're taking out less tissue when you do it in a minimally invasive way and more tissue when you're doing it in an open way? No. The, um, the, the amount of lung tissue that's removed is uh, a function of the tumor and the patient and their goals of life. We know that um, the chances of a cancer coming back um, are impacted by the size of the tumor and the degree to which it is growing into neighboring structures. Um, but also the amount of lung tissue uh, that is uh, removed at the time of surgery for some tumors. We've gotten a lot better at characterizing the behavior of cancers so that tumors that in uh, even five or uh, five to ten years ago we would remove an entire lobe. Uh, there are three lobes on the right and uh, two lobes on the left. We, for some tumors that we used to remove an entire lobe, we realize that they're more, uh, they're better behaving tumors, and we can remove uh, uh, less um, less lung tissue. But no, the the amount of lung tissue is not dictated by the approach. Um, in general, um, at centers that do minimally invasive and open techniques, they generally reserve the open techniques for the larger tumors, which mandate uh, removing uh, greater amounts of lung tissue. It, I do think an important factor in, in is you're balancing the ability uh, to cure a cancer with the patient's quality of life, and that's a very individual decision. I think as uh, lung cancer physicians, we really need to understand what a patient's goals of care are. And there are certainly patients who will do everything humanly possible to beat their cancer. And, and even if that meant that their activities would be limited, um, uh, they, would, they would want that. And there's other uh, patients who have certain activities that define their quality of life and they would accept a lesser, uh, a less effective cancer uh, treatment in order to save specific qualities of life. And, and as uh, physicians, we really can't make those judgments for patients. All we can do is offer an array of options and try to figure, help patients figure out what is the best fit for them. So in terms of the differences and the advantages of a minimally invasive approach versus an open approach. You're really taking out the same amount of lung tissue. You're taking out the same amount of healthy tissue versus disease tissue. The only real difference then is the complication rate. Is that right? So the 
it's the it's the size of the incisions and it's the degree to which the in the tissues of the chest are uh, bruised at the time of surgery. A traditional incision is actually um, we, uh, uh, thoracic surgeons have gotten to the point where even our traditional open incisions are nowhere near as long as they used to be. We used to perform surgeries through incisions that were 10 to 15 inches long. We rarely do that anymore. Even our open approaches, the incisions are five inches uh, long. Um, it, that, that's our bigger incision. The, the big difference is um, by using instruments that go uh, through um, plastic tubes between the ribs, uh, it's much less traumatic to the tissues. Um, and as a result, uh, there's less pain, um, there's a faster recovery, and there's fewer complications. Mm -hmm. And what about operative time? Is that are, are we faster with the minimally invasive approach than we are? with the open approach? the In general, I think they come out to be about the same. It's tough to compare them now because we're reserving uh, the open approach uh, through uh, for cases that are more challenging. And so those would have been uh, more time-consuming. Uh, uh, we have found that, that the length of an operation um, there is some correlation with the length of an operation at the extremes, um, but for the vast majority of patients, the few minutes really doesn't make uh, a big difference in, in their ability to recover from the operation. Okay. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about minimally invasive techniques and all kinds of surgical advances for thoracic malignancies right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about surgical advances with my guest, Dr. Dan Boffa. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, committed to pioneering the next generation of innovative lung cancer treatments. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Dan Boffa. We're talking about surgical advances in treating lung cancer. And so right before the break, Dan was telling us that, you know, about half of the patients, half of the 200,000 patients that are diagnosed with lung cancer in this country every year are eligible for surgery. And surgery has made a great deal of advances over the last several decades, going from big incisions, 10, 15 inches, to smaller incisions, five inches or so, to now minimally invasive approaches, which have the advantage of less pain and less complications. Now, Dan, I would assume that another advantage potentially is that these patients get out of hospital sooner. Is that right? That is true. It's the the uh, the average length of stay 
uh, when a patient has a minimally invasive approach is about 30% shorter compared to somebody having an open approach. And that translates into a faster uh, recovery to their baseline activities, um, uh, meaning their ability to uh, uh, perform their, their normal daily routine as well as uh, going back to work. And so from a financial standpoint, you know, we all know that the healthcare system uh, is really uh, bogged down in terms of, of the financial burden of disease. Um, are these operations, when done in a minimally invasive approach, more cost-effective or, in fact, cheaper than the open approach simply because of the reduced length of stay, or does it all come out in the wash? That is a very complicated question, uh, only because there are costs to the healthcare system, but there are also patient costs, and there are the the economic considerations of a person's ability to return to work. I would say overall, from a patient cost perspective, there's no difference. There should be no difference in what a patient is exposed to. From the healthcare economy, I do believe that minimally invasive uh, approaches um, ultimately do save hospitals uh, money in reducing length of stay. Uh, there are um, there are some additional equipment costs that you don't have with open techniques, but I think the uh, length of stay, um, the reduction in complication rates, um, uh, ultimately save hospitals uh, money. And so. I wanted to unpack this whole minimally invasive approach because we use this term kind of like a cliche. What exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about kind of using small incisions with telescopes that then show you the inside of the chest on a video camera, kind of like how we take out gallbladders these days? Or, or are we talking about other things as well? So uh, from... So Lung, minimally invasive lung cancer surgery has a lot of similarities with minimally invasive surgery that, that uh, patients are probably more familiar with, like uh, having your gallbladder removed or your appendix removed um, through, the, through belly uh, incisions. The, the concept is the same where there are small incisions and plastic tubes are inserted through those uh, incisions, generally about the size of a straw and uh, uh, skinny instruments uh, are inserted through these uh, tubes and a camera, which is also about the size of a straw, um, projects the anatomy on a screen. The surgeons are standing at the bedside and are operating the instruments um, from the outside of the patient um, and having the instruments uh, perform activities uh, inside the patient. The um, there's a certain degree of magnification so that in a lot of uh, situations, the ability of the surgeon to see what's going on is actually uh, better with a minimally invasive uh, approach. And so, so this is, is this something what some patients may have heard of, this concept of VATS, video-assisted thoracic surgery? Exactly. The um, Yes. So where we have laparoscopic uh, approaches in the abdomen or arthroscopic approaches uh, in joints, the uh, thoracoscopic approach is uh, what we use in the chest. Now, there is uh, minimally invasive can mean 
um, uh, the VATS, which is generally interpreted as the surgeons at the bedside holding the instruments um, using a camera. And then there's robotic minimally invasive uh, surgery where there is a surgical assistant at the bedside, but the surgeon is at the robot console. Um, they actually have a lot of uh, similarities in that the size of the incisions, the concept of um, of of surgery happening inside the body through instruments that are being uh, manipulated outside the body is very much the same. The robotic technique um, right now does not have a tremendous number of advantages um, uh, with respect to patient recovery. Uh, um, where the robotic advantage uh, has, a, where the robotic approach has some real advantages now, are that it allows uh, some surgeons that were not comfortable with the VATS approach to move into a minimally invasive approach because it it mirrors the open approach. the The surgeon's interaction with the instruments is much more in line with what it feels like to do open surgery. I do believe that robotic surgery, however, is the future um, because the of what will be able to happen once the instrument is inside the body. Uh, more and more, um, the the range of motion of an instrument in the body that's attached to the robot is uh, gaining uh, degrees of freedom in, in what it can do. Um, when you're performing standard VATS surgery, you could think of a, uh, a chopstick through a straw. There's only so much movement on the outside that leads to movement on the inside, whereas uh, the, ro the robotic approach is moving to the point that think of a tiny hand going through that straw and doing all the degrees of motion of a, of a human hand. Um, it's not there yet, but I think that's the direction it's going. And when it gets to that point, um, the uh, the array of of procedures that can be done through small incisions will uh, increase exponentially. And I think that re that further reduces the uh, trauma to tissues. So, if we if we extrapolate, however, to the current time where between VATS and a robotic approach, there isn't much difference in terms of complication rate. Um, but presumably, the robots are far more expensive. So from a health system overall cost perspective, is robotic surgery more expensive than VATS at the moment, although it may become the more cost-effective option in the long run? Again, um, it is a, it's a complicated issue and, and one that we are actively studying uh, here. Again, patients will not be exposed to any differences in costs uh, no matter how their, their surgery is performed. Uh, the, you're absolutely right. The, there are upfront costs to acquiring the uh, robot and the instruments that go with the robot. However, we're using the robot across a, a wide array of um, fields of medicine 
uh, for example, urology, um, the, uh, gynecology, um, a lot of the uh, abdominal surgeons are, are starting to use the robot. Therefore, you average the cost of acquisition of requiring the robot over a large number of procedures, and the, the, it becomes pretty comparable uh, uh, after a relatively short time to, uh, to the other minimally invasive approaches. I think at right now, I think that the ability to do surgery safely and the ability to patients to recover minimally invasive, whether it's done by VATS or by the robot, is very similar. That being said, there are some procedures where I do think the robot uh, does offer uh, some advantages. I think for a select group of thymic uh, tumors, which is a uh, tumor that lives under the breastbone, um, most of them can be uh, um, accessed and removed via VATS. But there's a subset of them that I really believe the robot uh, does a better job, again, because of those additional degrees of uh, freedom uh, of the instrument moving uh, once it's in the body. But for lung cancer, is there any particular criteria that you use to determine whether a patient should have a VATS procedure or a robotic procedure? I mean, you were talking about how the open procedures you tend to use for the, the bigger tumors, the uglier tumors, the ones that are in bad locations. But, but between um, a VATS procedure and a robotic procedure, if a patient is eligible for a minimally invasive procedure, how do you define which patient gets which? We really feel they're equivalent, and so it really depends on the preference of the patient and the preference of the surgeon. But we don't, while we have clear criteria uh, that uh, we share across surgeons, uh, both on our team and I would say within the surgical community um, uh, uh, internationally, I don't really feel there's uh, strict guidelines uh, to define a patient's eligibility for VATS versus robot. I think the field really feels that they're more similar than they are dissimilar and that uh, the eligibility criteria are pretty much the same. And so you mentioned patient preference. How would patients... Um, what what factors go into patient preference? Is it just that one sounds cooler? Exactly. <laughs> I, I have a number of patients that they they definitely want the robot and they definitely want a laser. And <laughs> um, it's I don't know where these ideas are coming uh, to them, but they have they have clear expectations on how they want their surgery done. And um, we try to be accommodating to the extent that we can, but our number one priority is to uh, have the surgery be performed safely um, and to give them the most effective uh, surgery in terms of curing their cancer as humanly possible. And so are there patients who come to you uh, who you just say, you know what, there's no surgery that I can do here. This is just not something that uh, is approachable with any technique? So the, um, there, are, there are patients in which surgery is unlikely to make them live longer or live better. The, the principle of surgery is you need to get all the tumor out and you need to have the patient survive the operation in a condition that is acceptable to them. 
and there are clear black and white uh, um, uh, issues. Uh, first, if you can't get all the tumor out, um, uh, for example, if a tumor was growing uh, throughout the heart and the only way to get it out was to remove the heart entirely, um, you're not going to give somebody a heart transplant and remove their lung cancer tumor. Um, so if you can't remove all the cancer, uh, um, then surgery actually does not help patients. There's also the issue of can you leave patients uh, in a condition that they find acceptable. I think this is a critical aspect, and that changes from patient to patient. Um, there are some patients where removing one lung uh, does not affect their ability to do the things that they really enjoy doing. And there's others that have a certain need for uh, um, activities in their life to enjoy their life and make their life meaningful that that, that would uh, result in an unacceptable change in their quality of life. The um, so I think that it's, it's highly uh, variable. I think a key question, though, is, is are you going to get the same answer to those questions from the same surgeon? And I think that is, to some degree, it's very patient-dependent, but it is also uh, surgeon-dependent. And uh, Henry Ford used to say that whether you think it can be done or it can't, you're usually right. Uh, I firmly believe that, and I think there are surgeons who don't feel comfortable removing uh, uh, things, uh, tumors that are growing into other structures. And if a surgeon ever tells you that it's inoperable, not because it's spread, but because of what it's growing into, I do think that's a good uh, um, opportunity for a second opinion. And that can be performed at a number of centers. And I send some of my patients for second opinions if I feel that something can't be removed or it's not the right thing to do if that's what they, um, if that's what they prefer. Dr. Daniel Baffa is a professor of thoracic surgery at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu. And past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.